please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just going to read the first uh, six or seven verses. I was just thinking this uh, week, I've been preaching now for about 25 years, and when I started preaching, when you'd say, let's turn in our Bibles, you would generally hear this kind of little rustle all around the auditorium, because everyone had a paper Bible, and they would be going, like this, and you'd hear, has anyone got a paper Bible still? Okay, let's hear the rustle of paper. Now it's kind of, you hear like a silent, as people um, turn in their their iPads or whatever. But uh, let's still be people of the Word, all right? Still be people of the Word. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. It's just a wonderful, wonderful uh, portion of Scripture and I'm going to just uh, take one verse out of that and look at it this morning. But before I do that, I just want to, I've been thinking, obviously, as you do think over holiday times, you reflect, you kind of think on your own life. I've been thinking a lot about the life of this church. And I'd like to bring together three little things this morning, if I can. Three little thoughts. The first is this. What God birthed us in as a local church. Uh, secondly, what God would remind us of as being of most importance to us as a local church. And thirdly, what we can practically do to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. And so I've called this message, Digging the Well of the Gospel. Meaning, digging the well of the gospel in your life and in my life. How can we learn to preach the gospel to ourselves? So first of all, let me get back then to what we were birthed in as a a church. We've been going about 14 years now. And uh, obviously this church is part of God's plan of redemption for all of humanity. We're not, we're not just a little thing doing our own little thing, all right? We're part of God's plan of redemption for the universe. And over the last 30 years in particular, there, there has been a great move of church planting, of people rising up and saying there's a, a new way of doing church that looks slightly different from what has always been. And there's been a generation of people who've come and planted churches all over the world. And many of my friends that I grew up with my, in my 20s are now leading churches all over the world. 
I've got a friend in Singapore that leads a church. I've got friends in America that lead churches. I've got friends in Hong Kong. I've got friends all over the world that were part of that movement. And part of what we've done here was a result of that passion to see churches planted. And if you think back of the last 14 years in London, Hillsong has only been going for about 14 years. God has done an amazing thing in this community, in this local area of London through churches that have been planted. Holy Trinity Brompton has planted five or six churches in the last couple of years. God is doing an amazing thing, and I will always be grateful that this church was birthed out of that movement. And we had, it's a fantastic thing. The hope for this nation is healthy local churches. Uh, It reminds me of a story of a friend of mine when we had been, this church had been going a couple of years. This uh, other friend of mine, his church was um, being uh, audited uh, as the as you do, you submit your books to the auditor and they check everything. And the, the auditor phoned um, my friend and said, asked him like this really strange question. He said, how, how big are your church grounds? And um, he was like a little bit confused. So he said, well, they're quite small really. We just have a car park and we have some grass and it's not the huge grounds. And this was the confirmation that the auditor needed to confirm his suspicions that somebody had been siphoning off a whole lot of money. So he said, well, who looks after your buildings and gardens? And he said, I'm, you know, this guy, whoever he is, he's been spending a lot of money on church plants. And, and he was convinced that the guy had siphoned off all this money for church plants. Sometimes our, our, our um, terminology as uh, church people can be a bit confusing for others. Church planting. They'd spent a lot of money on church planting. And uh, that was the um, confusion. But I love what Bill Hybel says. Bill Hybel says this. He says, there's nothing quite like the local church when it is working well. There's nothing quite like the local church when it is working well. And I trust that you would hold that ahead of you as we move into the future. So, that's what we were birthed in, this church planting movement. Over the years, in in particular the last five years, God has been reminding us of what is most important what is most important? And um, there's been an unraveling of, of some stuff around the scaffolding of church. And God has been saying, I want you to look at it in a, in a, in a fresh way, which I actually believe is the old way. <laughs> and here, uh, if I can summarize briefly like this, there's a, a German church growth researcher called Christian Swartz, and he suggests that we are in a third reformation. All right, a third reformation. He says this, the first reformation took place in the 16th century when Martin Luther fought for the discovery of salvation by faith, the centrality of grace and of the scripture, and this was recognized as a reformation of theology. And we still live in that fullness of that revelation, don't we? We are not saved by works. We are not saved by trying to please God. How we are saved, how we come into relationship with God, is absolutely only by grace. The grace of unmerited favor of God lavished upon us, and because of what Jesus has done, we come to know God. That's It's grace apart from works. That's what we are, are, are rooted in. He says this, the second reformation was in the 18th century when personal intimacy with God was rediscovered. He calls this a reformation of spirituality. And if you know the 18th century, the Puritans and other people that went before and uh, Wesley and all of those guys, it was a, a reformation around personal spirituality and holiness. And now he says we are in a third reformation of structure, how we actually do church. 
The First Reformation brought a reformation of theology, which largely failed to affect the major practices of the church. This new reformation, says Schwartz, will be a complete overhaul of how church has been done for the last 1,700 years. And I, 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 I witness with that. I feel like God has been saying that. He's been putting His finger on His bride over the last five, ten years and reminding us it's not just about the how of church. It's about the why. <laughs> why we do what we do. Why do we do this thing? What are we really about? And at right, I want to say three very simple things this morning to remind you. These are the things that we are cherish and we've come to cherish over the last five years. The first is simply this, and these are not profound things. They're incredibly simple things. The first thing we want to value above everything else is the message of the Son of God. We want to value the gospel. It's the most important thing. It is the primary song that we need to be singing in our hearts. You know, we can have many other songs that sing in our hearts. We can... Um, we can be singing the song of the local church. We can be singing the song of effectiveness in business. We can be singing the song of leadership. We can be singing the song of our own family. But I want to put it to you that the center of our hearts must be the person of Jesus Christ. This is the message of the gospel. And what do I mean by the gospel? I want to just put this to you, and I've said this many times before, and I, I want to just again just emphasize it. There's the most beautiful verse for me in the whole of the scripture is Romans 8, verse 1. Do you know what it says? I'm not trying to trick you. Not try, it simply says, There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the summary of the gospel. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? It means that there's a triumph in our lives over sin. There's a triumph that Jesus has brought that has dealt with sin and death once and for all. And I've said this before. Can I say it again? Paul does not say there's no accusation because if you've been a Christian for any while, you know this, that the devil accuses you, your own mind accuses you, and there's a transforming that needs to happen so that we start to see things according to how Jesus sees us, not how we see ourselves. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. Paul does not say there's no tribulation. No, he doesn't say there's no hard times. He doesn't say there's no cross to bear. I've been reading a book in my holidays called 70 Great Christians when I was in France. Do you know of all the church fathers, Tertullian, Augustine, Cyprian, all of those that lived in the first four or five centuries, you know their lives were extremely, extremely hard. Most of them were martyred. Most of them were killed. <laughs> How have we got into this kind of theology that says there's no suffering, there's no hard times for Christians? This is the gospel. In the hard times, there's no fear for us because God has dealt with fear completely. We can walk confidently into the future knowing that whatever comes, the faithful God who's been faithful to us in the past will be faithful to us now and through Him we will overcome whatever is to come. This is the gospel. He doesn't say there's no tribulation. He doesn't say there's no discipline because uh, the Scripture also says that God does discipline those He loves. He's taking us forward. He's making us more like His Son. What He does say is there's no condemnation. What He means by this is God is pleased with you. God is smiling over you. 
There's no need for you to fear anything because God has dealt with all of that. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is incredibly good news. Remember what James said, and can I reference our study of James? James 1.25, the one who looks into the perfect law of freedom. Who is the perfect one of freedom? Jesus. The one who gazes intently into the face of Jesus and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets but a doer acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a freedom that James is saying has been bought for us and he purposely calls it freedom because when we are born again and we are being regenerated by Christ, we are set free from our past and from what the blood of Christ does for us is that we are then set free to explore who who we were really meant to be. Who God has really made us to be. And there are new possibilities that we can explore for our own lives, for others in the church under the redemptive hand of Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. And so, this is the phrases that Christians use. We are no longer dead to sin. We are no longer in bondage to sin. We are set free. We are set free for what purpose? To be ourselves, to, to know who we really are. And this is the thing that I want to major on this morning. God sets us free from the mirror of introspection to always looking inside what does the Bible call that thing when we always look inside and say, are we good enough? Are we good enough? Are we good enough? That's called, the Bible says, that's the spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and self-control. And part of learning to live as a Christian is being transformed in the renewing of your mind, which means you start to see yourself as God sees you. And much of our Christian walk is not allowing ourselves to walk in fear, but to walk in freedom, to walk in what God says about us, and that God is undoing that, that thing in our minds so that we start to see things from His perspective. What does um, the devil want to do? The devil wants to, you to draw attention in your own life to every spot, wrinkle, blemish in your life. And the more you look inward into that mirror of introspection, he will convince you that you need a lot of more work in your own life before God will ever use you. That's what he's trying to do. He paralyzes us by... Getting us to look inside all the time. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm afraid about this. I'm afraid about that. I can't do that. I don't have the boldness to do that. No, that's the devil's plan for your life, to keep you tightly bound up so that you can't do what God has called you to do. And what does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. We all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image of His Son from one degree of glory to another. Isn't that beautiful? We don't, we don't try hard to please God. What we do is we gaze on the face of Jesus. We look into His face and we allow Him to, to speak to us and to whisper in our ear of His plan for our lives and what He's done and what He wants us to become and that increasingly sets us free on the inside from fear, from introspection, from anxiety, from thinking things are never going to work well and we walk into His plan that He has for us which is perfect in every way. And so, the same 
thing that James says is that we fix our gaze on the perfect law of liberty. It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. In fact, the Greek in James is parakupsas, which means to gaze intently into. It's to like look into the eyes of your lover. To gaze intently into their face. That's how we to gaze on the face of Jesus. And as we gaze on the face of Jesus, we are transformed from the inside out. And so, this beautiful verse, there's no condemnation. You are free. God is smiling on you. You are okay. Relax. Love Jesus. Be the person that God has created you to be. Gaze intently into His face. You don't have to wait until you are 100% right to get on with your life and to enjoy your life. Amen? This is good news. There's no condemnation. This is the wonder of the gospel. So that's what I mean by the gospel, all right? That's what I mean. Secondly, this needs to be personal. There's a personal well of salvation in your own life that God wants you to dig. What do I mean by that? Well, I always remember this story of the American cattle rancher that went to Australia to learn from the Australian farmers and how they used to ranch their cattle. And he was, he was struck by a number of differences. And when he, where he came from in the States, cattle were branded with a branding iron and uh, they, were, they were kept in allocated areas with fencing. And he went to Australia to the outback where they farm cattle and there were no fences anywhere. And so he speaks to the Aussie rancher. He says, um, don't you have any fences out here? And the reply is, out here, we don't build fences, we dig wells. We don't build fences, we dig wells. Where the water is, the animals will come. You don't need a fence if you've got a well where they will drink. And I want to say to you, that's one of the most important things that we've been trying to reestablish in this church over the last while, uh, the well of personal salvation. The well of personal salvation. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? The wonderful good news of Jesus, how is that affecting your own life? Why? Because there can be many motivations in a local church. Uh, is, is that not true? There can be subtle motivations that are actually fences that you might not even speak out, but you know they are there. And there are subtle little coercions uh, to try and get people to serve in the church or to do whatever in the church. How many of you have ever experienced that? I've experienced that. What I'm saying is this. If in your life there's a personal well of salvation, how much Jesus has done for you, that you are grateful and that you see your whole life is one act of worship to Him, whether, whether, and that includes working at the BBC or working at... King's College, or working in the pub. It's an act of worship. All of our lives is worship to God. And what we do here on a Sunday is a celebration together of what God has done for us. If that personal well is being dug in your own life, it means this. It means that you respond to the life of God, not out of a sense of obligation, not out of a sense of, oh well, the church needs some stuff to be done so I better volunteer for something to feel better. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to get pressured. No, no. Rather, when there's a well of personal salvation that is being dug deeply in your own life and you are doing all you can to keep it open, then surely the motivation for any kind of service is, Jesus, I love you. 
out of devotion, I'm going to do this out of conviction, not because anyone is telling me to do it, but because I love you, and I want to, uh, uh, I want to obediently give something of my life in worship to you. And that includes what I do in a local church community. Can you see the difference? And I would rather lead a church where things happen more slowly because people are coming to a place in their own lives of saying, God, I really want to do this because I love you, than me getting up every week with a whip of encouragement and going, Ka-cha! we need more people in the, in the kids' ministry to help serve. Please, please, please. You know what? It's absolutely exhausting. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> and we've been trying not to do it. All we are appealing to is in your own life. Who is Jesus to you? How's He changed your life? What is, difference is that making in your life? And, and what difference can that make in the community? So whatever gift you have, my encouragement to you is to use it. <laughs> yes? To use it with all of your might and to do what you can do and we will go forward as a church together. Are you with me? Are you hearing what I'm trying to say? This is a different motivation. This is living free in the grace of God. And that's the third thing I want to say. Living in grace and truth. I could say the Word and the Spirit. I could put it many ways. This is what we've come to value in the last five years above everything else. We want the grace of God. We want the truth of God. We want the Word of God. We want the Spirit of Christ. That's what we want. We want both. And I spoke last week, for those of you that weren't here, about authenticity, about being authentic, about that being at the very center of everything that we do as we continue to move forward as a worshiping community. Can I put it like this? If there's not authenticity in this community, the only thing we will cause each other is damage. Yeah? What do I mean? If, if you are not the real you sitting in the pulpit, sitting in the pew, if I am not the real me, preaching in the pulpit, if I'm putting on any kind of show when I come here on a Sunday, if Ed is not really the Ed that I know when I meet with him on a Wednesday at Life Group, if he's not really genuine Ed, if there's another Ed that comes on a Sunday, all that happens is that niceness will result, diplomacy will result, exhaustion will result, disappointment will result, frustration will result. If we are not genuinely the people that we are. You get it, guys? What we need is grace and truth. What we need above all things is the gospel transforming us from the inside that we are increasingly becoming more and more like Jesus. We are increasingly becoming the people that He wants us to be. And what does that produce? It produces open-hearted ministry. It produces unity. It produces integrity. It it produces healthy disagreement sometimes. It produces courageous faith. It produces conviction. It, it, It produces a recognition that we all have diverse lives and callings and we are in a a persevering covenant with each other. That's what the gospel produces. These are jewels that are not produced by coercion, that are not produced by subtle putting stuff on people. They are only produced by the gospel radically transforming us from the inside and our lives becoming worshipping lives.
Am I too intense today, guys? I don't mean to be intense, really. <laughs> okay, those are the, f- the first two things. What the church was birthed in, what is of most importance to us, and then thirdly, can I just land with this? How can we learn to dig the well of the gospel in our own lives? I want to I just f- focus you back on that f- one little verse in the portion that we read, which Paul says... I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You are being saved. You see, this is the thing with Paul. The gospel was personal to Paul. It was very personal. He uses three phrases. He talks about the gospel, and when he says the gospel, he means the eternal truth of what Jesus has done for us. Paul also speaks about my gospel, that this eternal truth that God has revealed through Jesus has become His. It's, it's active in His life. It's personal in His life. And then thirdly, he speaks about our gospel, that there's a corporate thing that we get to do together because of what Jesus has done for us. Are you with me? And so it's possible to know the eternal truth of the gospel, to adhere to it in your mind and say, yes, I believe that's true, without actually it becoming my gospel that is transforming my life. Are you with me? And so I'm now saying we believe in the gospel and what God has done for us. How can we learn to dig that well in our own lives so the gospel becomes increasingly real for me in my own life and increasingly transforms me from the inside? You see, for Paul, it was very personal. And what I mean by that, let's read, uh, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, please. I'm going to read some verses with you there. It was personal for Paul in a most radical way. He says this in verse 12 of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly, what does Paul say about himself? Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost sinner, Jesus might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. The gospel was intensely personal for Paul. The gospel for Paul was not just a mild improvement in his personality. (laughs) You know, I just want to be a better person. I want to be a little bit more patient and, and not lose my temper with my children. That's why I need the gospel. No, no, it wasn't that for Paul. It was a radical transformation for Paul. And it should be for us. A radical transformation. He calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the gospel. But there's this hope because of what Christ has done in him. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know that hope for your own life? It's, just, it's, not, it's not about just being a little bit nicer person. <laughs> it's about a radical new hope. It's about all that Jesus has done is transforming us to be like his son. And so I want to say, 
can we learn to preach the gospel to ourselves? And so I want to ask you a question as I ask this question of myself this morning. What voice is loudest in your life? What voice is loudest in your head? Is it what Jesus says about you? Or is it what you say about yourself? Or is it what other people say about you? I'm talking about the silent conversations that you have in your head. All right? And we all have those conversations, don't we? When you are walking in the park, like I often do, what is happening between your ears? I said, I was joking with um, Cheryl and said, perhaps no one should know what really is happening between our ears in our silent moments because if they really did know, men with white coats would come and take us all away. Isn't that true? I've discovered this, that no one is more influential in your own life than you are. Because no one spends as much time talking to you as you do talking to yourself. You are the person that talks to yourself most every day. You are in this unending, incredibly important conversation with your soul every moment of every day (laughs) that you're awake. And you organize, you interpret You analyze what's going on inside of you. You analyze what's going on outside of you. You talk to yourself about your past, the mistakes you've made. You talk to yourself about the present and what you're hoping for and dreaming for in your own life. And you talk to yourself about your future and what you hope to become. Is that not how we talk all the time in our heads? And obviously, like I said, this is an internal conversation, (laughs) and some of it needs to remain an internal internal conversation. But what I'm trying to say to you this is self-talk can be incredibly positive, but unless it's been controlled by the Holy Spirit, it can also become incredibly negative and dangerous. And sometimes we don't even realize that we are saying certain things about ourselves, but we are. And what we say about ourselves shapes our desires, shapes our actions, and ultimately shapes how we see God. So, I want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, preach the gospel to yourself every day. What did Martin Luther say? He said, I beat the gospel into my own head every day, and then I beat it into the heads of others. Yes? What does God say about you? God says you are loved. God says you are accepted. God says you are His Son. God says that you are a delight to Him. God says His smile is upon your life. God says there's no condemnation for you. God says regardless of your past, whether you come from a broken marriage and a messed up life, whether you were abused as a child, God says that past, once it's dealt with in the blood of Jesus, has no impact on your future and you have a glorious future because of Jesus Christ. That's what God says about you. You know, I'm learning this lesson. (laughs) I'm not preaching what I'm not living in. 
I'm learning this lesson. My biggest enemy is my head. Oh God, if only I hadn't done that. If only I hadn't said that to that person. I'm so sorry I hurt that person. Do you ever have those conversations with yourself? If only I had, if only I'd been more wise, things would have been different. I'm learning this myself. And I'm learning from a person called David in particular. David is one of my heroes. <laughs> He's always in trouble. Always in trouble. Go and read the Psalms. David is always in trouble. And he's always crying out to God and saying, God, help me. <laughs> I love David. I want to say to you, preach the gospel to yourself, especially when you are facing trouble. Especially. Um, David says in uh, two examples for you, and there are many, many, many. Psalm 27. David talks to himself. Listen to what David says in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold in my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Who is he talking to? He's talking to himself. He's saying, the Lord is your light and your salvation. What does he say in other parts? He says, why am I so downcast? Why is my soul so downcast within me? What does he say? Bless the Lord, my soul. He commands himself. He, he addresses his head and his heart and he says, no, you're out of alignment with what God says about you. Come on now. Wake up. <laughs> Change your perspective. See yourself as God sees you. And then I want to point you to this. The second thing that David says is not only talks to himself, but he remembers what God has done for him. Huh? He remembers what God has done for him. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Love there actually means the mercy, the grace of God. Give thanks to the Lord for His mercy. His grace always endures forever. And then he goes on and he says, When I was hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord, and He brought me into a spacious place. David not only speaks to himself, he reminds himself of what God has done for him in the past. And because of what God has done for him in the past, he knows God is going to be faithful to him now in the present. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious and hear my prayer. Do you notice all of these examples are in the past tense? of what God has done for him. He's not, he's not necessarily trying to focus on currently relieving his circumstance. He's just saying, God, thank you for what you've done for me in the past. And I know the same grace and mercy that you showed me in the past is available to me right now in my presence. And you know what the problem is? And I am landing. You and I have such a short-term memory. We have spiritual amnesia. <laughs> we all suffer from it. Why? Because we are so absorbed with the present. We are so absorbed with relieving the stress of today. When trouble comes knocking, we get absorbed in what is immediate, what is right in front of our faces, and we forget so quickly that God has already delivered us from so, many so much stuff in the past, and He's transforming us, and our future is already entirely different because of what He's already done. We forget it so easily. And so I want to encourage you. Remember the specific ways that God has 
delivered you in the past. Remind yourself. Remind God of His faithfulness. It was kind of fits in a little bit of what Quibus and the guys were preaching about speaking what God says, the faith that God has for us. And in this sense, David speaks the gospel into his own soul. He says, in effect, he's saying, remember, what I'm going through right now is not new. I've experienced trouble in the past. God was good to me. He remains good to me today. And what I'm facing is not outside his loving and wise rule for my life. So in conclusion, we stand on the cusp of this new term, looking into the new year. Can I summarize? What are you going to say... What are you saying in your current circumstance? What is your, what is your, your uh, response saying about God? Do your words stimulate faith in your own life? Do your words stimulate hope? Do your words stimulate courage? Or does your self-talk, the conversation in your head, stimulate doubt, discouragement, and fear? I'm not saying this to condemn anyone. I'm trying to say this to encourage you to gaze on the beautiful face of Jesus to trust Him with your future? Do you remind yourself that God is near, that He's right near? Do you remind yourself of what God has done for you? Or do you reason to yourself and logically just say, well, given your circumstances, God must be far away because your circumstances are too difficult? How faith-driven, how Christ-centered is the conversation that you have with yourself every day? Do you remind yourself, do you point yourself towards the beauty and practicality of God's grace in your life? Or do you tell yourself not to run towards Him, but to run away from Him when you most need to run towards Him? One last time. (laughs) There's no one in your life that is more influential than you are. Because no one talks to you as much as you do. What will you say to you today? (laughs) When you leave this place, what will you say? I hope, I'm praying, and we're going to have a time of ministry, and I'm going to ask the prayer team to to come up and, and minister. I pray that how we will all learn to begin to speak in an increasing measure is so to unlock, to, un, to dig up that well of the gospel in our own life that there's always life-giving water flowing from the inside out. Yeah? And we're not filling it in by our own talk, which is not full of uh, courage and full of hope. So how will you choose to speak to yourself? Will you learn to speak as David did? As David has shown us, I want to encourage you to get into the Psalms. Learn like David did to lean on the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, and how he's been good to us in the past, so he will be good to us today and into the future. Amen? I do want to pray for you guys this morning. Maybe, maybe you, 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 you know that you do have a battle in your own head, and sometimes you feel like you give in to that negative kind of mindset that I've been trying to describe this morning. Perhaps you just want to be prayed for and say, God, I, I want to learn to live in that grace where I see things from your perspective. I just need your power. I just need your encouragement. Yeah? So we'd like to, like to pray for you. Is there anyone who would 
wants prayer out of what I've shared this morning, please just come forward now. I'm going to ask the prayer team to pray with us. We're going to trust God to release that power in your own life by the Holy Spirit that you can learn to live speaking like this, speaking the life of Christ over your own life. Amen?